This podcast is brought to you by yorktrito.com and comes with a warning. Never seek praise from your political hero. It's bound to backfire badly. Look what my hero had to say about me. I mean, you, as an ideas person, someone new in public life, not besmirched by the wrestling, what a joke. And let me not hear from the press gallery ever again about this as a non-political person. I mean, frankly, frankly, well, 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 faint if we hear that again. That, now, let me tell you, Mr Speaker, unless he's in with a question in his hand written by someone on his staff, and with a speaker, he's useless. Useless. Absolutely. In fact, Mr Speaker, it's an insult to one's professional skills to have to be in such a debate. To have to be in such a debate. He thought bluster and volume and decibels were to there for, for, for substitute for quality. Quantity to substitute for quality and amplitude and noise to substitute for real argument. I mean, this is the sort of humbug which just makes us sick. And it's particularly made us sick about you. You fraud. You disgraceful, disgusting fraud. The, the answer is, mate, mate, because I want to do you slowly. I want to do you slowly. I mean, no, no. I know. There's got to be a bit of sport in this for all of us. No, no. There's got to be a bit of sport in this for all of us. And in the psychological battle stakes, we are stripped down and ready to go. Ready to go. And uh, I want to see those ashen-faced performances. More of them. I want to be encouraged. I want to see you squirm out of this load of rubbish over a period of months. There's going to be no easy execution for you. No easy execution for you. And if you think I'm going to put you out of your misery quickly, you can think again. Welcome, potties and gladys, to Reflective Contemplations, the modern version of a fireside chat. The big elephant in the room has been slain. The presidential election is behind us. But before we consider the results, listen to this. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes. More than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? Is it? Is it morning or morning in America? Well, of course, dear listener, I'm harking back to the famous, infamous Ronald Reagan re-election campaign ad of 1984. And by the looks of it, well, the Reagan Democrats in the Rust Belt hold for Donald Trump. The Trumpian Democrats, so to speak, are back. Well, I must say, it's 11 o'clock in the morning here in Berlin. The results are not quite clear yet, but overall, it has been a roller coaster night for me. It's my eighth US presidential election, which I have been following very closely. My first one at the age of 14 in 1992. And this has been absolutely exhausting. 
emotionally draining. I must say, I literally, I sit here in front of my microphone and I feel exhausted, tired, and also a lingering, lingering sense of disappointment, of course, on that day. Um, I expected the Democrats to do much better tonight. Uh, there were hopes in the Democratic Party that they could secure the Sun Belt. They were hoping, for instance, to make inroads in Texas, in some other states uh, along that route. Uh, that didn't materialize at all. Um, the only state that has truly, has truly swung, has become a truly swing state for Biden is Arizona. Otherwise, the makeup of the electorate hasn't changed at all. So in essence, we look at the same situation we had in 2016. Now the Rust Belt seems to be holding for Trump. Obviously, uh, counting is still underway. And we don't know how this all turns out in the end. My political instinct tells me that Trump will narrowly hold on. Uh, that's a guess. That's not necessarily evidence-based. That is just my instinctive hunch. Now, let's tell you, as an analyst, of course, I love nights like those. You know, these nights are just fantastic. That's what I love. But, but as someone holding heartfelt convictions as well, it has been a disastrous night. Even if Biden wins the White House and wins the political battle, so to speak, he will not have won a huge moral victory. I was hoping for a resounding repudiation of Trumpism in America. And we can already say, never mind the result in the end, never mind whether Trump wins or Biden gets into the White House, we will in the end have a situation where the country remains as divided as it has been before. And that, just considering what Trump had to say a few hours ago, uh, calling into question the entire electoral process, this is, is just absolutely earth-shattering. It's, it's profoundly disappointing. Because even if Biden gets in, uh, we will not have a very different America. For that to happen, the Democrats would have to do much better in the Sun Belt, and they would have, should have won by a much bigger margin, if they do win at all. And remember, the popular vote doesn't really matter in that regard. So overall, it's, it's, been a, it's been a very disappointing night. I still keep my fingers crossed for Joe Biden, but his path is narrow, very, very narrow. He has to win Michigan. He has to win Georgia. Perhaps he can scrape home in Wisconsin. We will see. The, the count has just shifted in, in Biden's favor, but whether he can hang on to 11,000 lead is more than questionable. So my, my political instincts tell me um, Biden is not going to make it into the White House. And then you're going to look at four more years of Trump. Another twilight zone of uncertainty in American politics. And that is really the, the crux of the matter. Um, if a president who is as norm-defying as he is manages to get re-elected, that, that doesn't bode well. That doesn't bode well for the country. That doesn't bode well. Uh, for the world either. It will further in, embolden populists who might want to take a leaf out of Trump's political playbook. So overall, it's been, a, it's been a very disappointing night. I'm not a very happy man today, as you can tell, and I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to hide it. 
it, it has been absolutely disappointing. And of course, it, it might well spell the end of the polling industry, obviously, because we all relied on modeling and polling and that hasn't happened. Now, credit where credit is due. Uh, if Trump wins, he has achieved something really extraordinary in American politics. I mean, you have to give him that. He ran a very effective ground operation in the, in the Rust Belt, and it seems to be working for him. And as a political observer, as a political analyst, I just want to have to salute him. You know, it's, it's a great politician. Uh, that's all you can say. You may, not, you may hate him. You may not agree with him. I certainly don't, but I salute him for that achievement. And the Democrats, I think, going to have a lot of soul searching to do over the, over the next couple of years. And um, so at 11 o'clock Berlin time, 5 o'clock East Coast time in the morning in the US, all I can say to you is keep watching the number game and keep your fingers crossed. It may still work out for Biden, but even if it does, it's not a comprehensive resounding victory and that will make it very difficult for him to become a effective president i remember biden in my opinion was always a weak candidate you know biden was never a very strong candidate that doesn't mean you can't be a good president i think he has the credentials to be a good president to be a unifying president especially if he treads carefully and uses something called tri triangulation which, as you know, is a sort of was invented by um, Clinton's uh, chief pollster Morrison, who organized his famous re-election campaign in 1996. And I think if Biden had positioned himself as a president between as a, as a unifying figure between the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party and the moderate right, then he could have become quite effective. But with that result, even if he scrapes home in the end, which I don't believe will happen, um, he will have enormous difficulties right from the start. So we're going to have to wait and watch. Uh, we're going to have to look out for Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia and Pennsylvania. Now, if Biden wins Wisconsin and wins perhaps uh, Georgia, or Michigan, then he still has a path into the White House. If he doesn't, game is up. And Trump looks certain to just get over the line in the end. Well, all I can say is for me, it's time to try to come down after each election. There's a huge emotional come down in my case. And uh, I was hoping this time it's going to be a positive one. Uh, but I'm afraid it's not. But that's that's something you have to live with in politics. You know, things don't go always your way. And remember, remember one thing: to all of those who, you know, are, are close to a nervous breakdown or close to tears, remember it's not the end of the world. If your opponent wins, even if Trump wins, life goes on. America is still there, and another four years of Trump will do little to advance progressive causes, but there's gonna be another round in 2022 and in 2024. So, you know, don't despair. That's the price we all pay for democracy. And I still think no matter the result, that's a price worth paying.
Right, what else can I tell you? Not much, I'm afraid, because I don't know how it's all gonna pan out in the end. So when I come back, what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about my love-hate relationship with America. should see it that the people have spoken and we respect the majesty of the democratic system i just called uh, governor clinton over in little rock and offered my congratulations he did run a strong campaign i wish him well in the white house and uh, i want the country to know that our entire administration will work closely with his team to ensure the smooth transition of power there is important work to be done, and America must always come first. So we will get behind this new president and wish him, wish him well. My fellow Americans. On this day, with high hopes and brave hearts, in massive numbers, the American people have voted to make a new beginning. This election is a clarion call for our country to face the challenges of the end of the Cold War and the beginning of the next century to restore growth to our country and opportunity to our people, to empower our own people so that they can take more responsibility for their own lives, to face problems too long ignored from AIDS to the environment, to the conversion of our economy from a defense to a domestic economic giant. I must confess, dear listener, this is almost like boarding a time capsule. It's November the 4th again, Wednesday morning, four o'clock, 1992. And as a 14-year-old boy, I was glued to my transistor radio following the election returns on a German commercial radio station. And despite its good reporting on the US, it went straight into bankruptcy just five months later. In the lead up to the election, let's say from September 92 to November 92, there was no other topic for me. Nothing else caught my interest except the election in the United States. And I remember I must have gone on people's nerves. It was a sort of political awakening, really it was. And Clinton won, of course. And uh, at the time I thought, now the entire world is going to change. On January 20th, 1993, everything is going to change. I must say I was dispossessed of that notion pretty quickly. But there we go. This was my last election I sort of experienced with plenty of political naivete. Um, afterwards, that all changed. But my love for American politics never ceased. It was always there. And so I followed election after election. I was so fascinated with US politics that my father had to take me books from the library, you know, and he read them to me. Access to books at the time was very, very limited for me. It was uh, simply not possible to get really good books in Braille or any other format I could read. And I suppose he must have rolled his eyes a couple of times, but he never complained. 
And so I followed US politics in 1994, Newt Gingrich's contract for America, and then the 1996 election, a bit more detached because, well, it was a pretty inconsequential one. And then came 1998, my father and I finally traveling to the United States. I was a student at the time in Dresden, and those eight days in August would change everything. You know, I still entertained the idea of becoming a foreign correspondent one day. And then I was there in New York, realizing that I didn't speak a word of English. So it was a complete joke. I thought, how can you possibly comment on, on a country without even speaking a word of, of its language? And there was only one thing to do, learning English properly, really properly. So New York changed everything. A language course followed in New York, three months Toronto, and then I was at last set on the path to become a real citizen of the world, so to speak. Then, of course, came the famous presidential election of 2000 and all the hyperbole, uh, Gore versus Bush. And that was the election I experienced back in London with Americans around me in the English-speaking world through the English-speaking media. That was a step in the right direction. Then there was a glimmer of hope in 2008 with the election of Barack Obama, only to have many of his policies undone by Donald Trump over the last couple of years. Dear listener, you may ask why I have this love-hate relationship with the United States and what I mean by that. Let me talk about some of the problems that immediately spring to mind. There is, of course, voter suppression in the South, particularly in the South. Not so long ago, the Supreme Court did away with the Voting Rights Act. It was a huge struggle of the civil rights movement. And for those of you who are interested in the subject, I have a book recommendation for you as well. Ari Bernman wrote a fantastic account of the long and painful struggle that eventually led to the passing of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Now, the Supreme Court did away with it, and states like Texas, but other states in the South as well, they were quick to react and put up additional barriers for people to register to vote. And those barriers largely affect minorities. So that's one of the major problems I have with the US. This is a severe problem largely underreported, but it cannot be reconciled to our norms of what constitutes a democracy. Number one. Number two, plutocracy. It's a huge problem, especially since the Citizens United uh, uh, decision by the Supreme Court. And at the moment, corporations can pollute the political process with unprecedented amounts of money. There are no campaign restrictions whatsoever. So in a way, you could argue politics is money, it is bought, it has little to do with democracy. It's not just to say that uh, money decides elections, but money dictates legislation. I think that's an even more serious problem in that regard. I'm not aware of any other country in the Western world in which money plays such a significant role in the political process. That's number two. Number three, antiquated institutions, namely the Electoral College. 
And we have seen in the past that someone who wins the popular vote doesn't necessarily become president. It has been a problem in the past and it is likely to continue, especially if the country is as divided as it is now and elections are as close as they are now. In the United States, it has happened three times. Let me take you back quickly to 1876. We had Rutherford Fraud Hayes versus Samuel Patriot Tilden. Now, by all accounts, Tilden won the election, fair and square. But obviously, the Republicans managed to steal the election from him. In the end, a committee was formed, five Republicans, five Democrats, and five Supreme Court justices. This committee had to decide how to certify the states that had delivered a Republican version of the election and a Democratic version of the election. Democrats here with a capital D, of course. Now, in the end, they decided eight to seven, eight villains versus seven patriots. So the Democrats put it at the time to install Rutherford Hayes as the new president. This situation was particularly dangerous because obviously the Civil War had just ended 11 years earlier. And the wounds, particularly the open gaping wounds in the South, had not been patched up. With military men, it's almost like with intellectuals in politics. They're just not very good at it. Grant was a great general, but he was an incredibly ineffective president. His administration was plagued by scandals, corruption, etc., etc. So the Republicans decided in 1876 they had two frontrunners. I'm not going into details here, but they had two frontrunners that were at each other's throat all the time. And in the end, the Republican Party decided to nominate the governor of Ohio, Rutherford Hayes, a colorless character, really, to probably best described. And he was up against New York's governor, Samuel Tilden. Tilden had made his crusade to fight corruption in New York, especially in New York. When the election came, Tilden was ahead. Remember that the Republicans at the time controlled the Senate, they controlled the White House, they controlled the, the military, they controlled the Supreme Court as well. They were in a very good position to hijack the political process to install Hayes, and that's exactly what they did. Suffice it to say, Hayes' Hayes's presidency was very ineffective. He was famous for only two things. First, he put down a railway strike in 1877, killing 200 workers in the process. It's, that's worth mentioning for the record. And he also recommitted the United States dollar to the gold standard. That's the only thing he, he was pretty much famous for. Otherwise, his presidency was inconsequential, to say the least. The prevailing sentiment in 1780 was one vote got him in, he was gotten out by anonymous consent, really. So that was Hayes' presidency, and he made the uh, catastrophic strategic error to say that in, on his inauguration that he would only serve one term. So basically, right from day one, he was little more than a lame duck president. The second time it happened in 2000, of course, Al Gore versus Bush. Gore won the popular vote. Bush got in. With a bit of help from the Supreme Court, they stopped a recount in Florida. So in the end, this election in this 
democracy, in inverted commas, was decided by a bunch of justices on the Supreme Court. Now, then we had 2016. For the third time, a president did not win the popular vote, Donald Trump. Clinton got three million more votes. The Electoral College is not a democratic institution. It's a highly politicized institution. You wouldn't find that in the Western world anywhere else. These are the problems I have with America, and that's why I'm just not prepared to call it a democracy. It is not a democracy. It is a representative liberal system of government, but it has little to do with a democracy. Now, granted, the US is not a dictatorship, not yet. It is perhaps not an authoritarian state, not yet, but with a good conscience, I would say it is a semi-democracy. I think that's the best term that describes the US polity at the moment. Something between democracy and soft authoritarianism, perhaps. But nonetheless, I love the country, I love its people, it still is very significant for me as far as my own political interests are concerned. Now, dear listener, that's it from me for tonight. If you like this podcast, give me a like on iTunes. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Castro, Spotify, etc., etc. This podcast was brought to you by yorktreater.com. And what is my political hero saying now? Don't waste your time on me, son. Don't waste your time on me. I've been around. I know you. I know you. I know where the skeletons are.